It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, September 2nd, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. After the first Republican presidential debate, one GOP candidate had to lead his state through a hurricane. How should presidents and candidates lead through disaster? And what can it do for a campaign? I think Governor DeSantis did the right thing. Leave the campaign trail. Make sure in advance that you've got your preparations, your staging areas that are out of harm's way to go right into where the damage is. And after a lengthy pandemic-related pause and then a court fight, student loan repayments begin next month. Interest began accruing on loans this month. There are some exceptions, but millions of borrowers will now be back on the hook think people are hanging on to some of these things coming in and saving them and I would encourage them to act as if they're not going to and and be prepared. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. There was no talk of politics. Everything from the economy to what is woke took a back seat in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign, as the job he has took precedence over the job he wants. Uh, as you'd imagine, the counties that have the highest percentage of power outages are the counties that were in the main pathway of the storm. Utility workers are actively working to restore power in all affected areas. Governor Ron DeSantis is the only candidate who's a sitting governor who has already qualified for this second presidential debate thus far. And during Hurricane Adalia, at least, DeSantis was front and center, giving updates, doing the job he was elected to do. Fox talk radio host Guy Benson and Democratic strategist Richard Fowler talked about the optics this past week on America Reports. If he handles this well, because the, the risk is if you blow it, then it becomes a negative for you. But if you handle it well, which he absolutely has, there might be a side benefit politically, but that does not seem to be his driving motivation here. Uh, uh, he wants to do the job uh, properly. Uh, allow, me to say, allow me to say this. I, I, was, I was raised in Florida. I lived through Hurricane Andrew. I lived through a number of these hurricanes. I think when you're somebody who's a victim of one of these natural disasters, you don't want people to say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. You want help. The question is, can leading well help, especially if your presidential campaign has had some difficulties? So I actually called my brother who's in Ocala, which is in the central part of northern Florida, uh, and seeing how things were, first of all, personally, I wanted to know he and his uh, wife, my sister-in-law, were okay, but also to get his sense of of how Floridians are viewing Governor DeSantis and then studying on my own what's happened. Barbara Perry is a Gerald L. Belisles professor and presidential studies director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Not only this year with this current hurricane, but also last year, Hurricane Ian, which of course was so disastrous for uh, Central Florida. So uh, my sense is that uh, the Governor DeSantis has done well. Uh, of course, now this year he had to take time from the presidential campaign trail. And that's always a trade-off, but the trade-off always has to be for your state. In other words, don't don't stay on the campaign trail and not come back to your state. So he certainly came back in good time. Uh, I was following the preparations, as I understand the preparation staging areas were in the panhandle, North Florida, uh, so somewhat out of the the worst of the the hurricane central eye. And then, as I say, I just spoke to my brother in Ocala and they escaped with just some light rain and some winds. But of course, it's that storm surge. uh, And this time, once again, as last year, 
on the West Coast. So terrible flooding. I, I think the loss of life has been fairly minimal this time. And again, I think Governor DeSantis did the right thing. Leave the campaign trail. Make sure in advance that you've got your preparations, your staging areas that are out of harm's way to go right into where the damage is. And then finally, uh, there are 5,500 National Guard troops yeah. uh, on the ground now going into the areas that were flooded. So it's up to the governor to call on those. I would just say the the, the one slight misstep that he made last year that made headlines and and certainly uh, became a meme on social media, the, the wardrobe selection that the governor made of the strange white sort of looked like go-go boots from the 1960s. So even down to that, this day and age, again, with social media and everything is visual, uh, you do have to be a little bit careful about what you wear when you go into the disaster area. <laughs> Professor, the, the governor's had some challenges um, since he first announced his candidacy for president. He's had to lay people off on the camp- campaign. Uh, a mega donor to a super PAC questioned his ability to appeal to moderates and said he wouldn't give any more. Um, and then after the debate, as we've just discussed, he had to, you know, go be governor rather than candidate and, and lead through this hurricane. If you do that well, if you do your, your job well, is it easier to get the job you want you know if you're having a hard time with the campaign you know does showing that you can show up in those moments and and do the job you have well i I imagine that matters i'm sure it does it's it's hard to know whether and we'll see Uh, does he get a boost in the polls trying to get back to where he started uh as as you Mm. just said he's not had the best launch of a presidential uh campaign for the nomination of his party and had lost ground um, I, I watched the, the the Fox television version of the uh, the debate. I thought that he he did well, um, you know, represented himself well. Uh, he clearly has carved out a certain portion of uh, the the Trump electorate. So the the anti woke, the anti uh, critical race theory uh, group, that kind of thing. And he's he's reaching out to them. And to the extent that that appeals to some people, I think he's done that well. He's obviously has been very popular in his home state and, and won re-election by uh, a massive majority, a landslide, yeah. really. So uh, it's it's the kind of thing that we'll see if in the polls he goes up from his from what he's doing in Florida. But it's also the kind of thing it's probably easier to hurt yourself if he had done a poor mm-hmm. job uh, with this latest hurricane than doing a good job will give you a bump. But it certainly can't hurt him. It can only help. Well, one of the criticisms of him is that he seemed like maybe a little bit cold or awkward, not as personable or charming as maybe some prior candidates. How important is that sense of, I guess, like warmth or or as long as you get the job done and you're helping people and you're competent, um, is is that what matters or should matter without, you know, being warm and fuzzy? Well, one would think that that would be enough (laughs) to do the job well, whether that's governor or president. But let's be honest, in times of disaster, whether that's a natural disaster, uh, a terrible mass shooting, uh, a pandemic or an illness, uh, what Americans turn to to presidents and I think to governors as well is at least in the presidential realm, because we've only had males and it goes back to the father of our country, the father of our country, George Washington. And I think in times of crisis, the family turns to parents, turns to the mother and the father. And so we're just human beings and Americans turn to the father figure. And you might remember Bill Clinton was famous or infamous for saying, I feel your pain. And I think Bill Clinton was sincere about that. 
Americans want to know that the president is on their side, is empathetic and sympathetic, and not only feels their pain and and actually is warm and fuzzy because they're looking mm. for a warm hug from the president and often the first lady if she accompanies him. And then right on top of that, needs to make sure the timing is right so he's not too soon to the disaster and causes a stir with security and that sort of thing, but it's not right. too late. And finally, what is the first thing even people who are anti-government want? I need help from the government. I just <laughs> lost my house. I just lost my family. I just lost electricity. I need the federal government is the only proper government with an amount of power to give me what I need right now. Mm, right. I mean, that's why we pay taxes, right? For electricity and roads and infrastructure. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, Professor, politically, look at the last debate. You know, one of the candidates mocked Chris Christie for seeming too close to then President Obama during uh, during a disaster. Is there any danger politically to a appearing too friendly to the opposing team during a disaster? Or does it really depend on the person and their individual popularity? Like, do we allow some to get chummy and maybe not others? Yes, and the irony of the Hurricane Sandy superstorm disaster of 2012 was that it worked to the benefit of Barack Obama, who was running for re-election against Mitt Romney that year. That hurricane hit in September. The election was November. And there was Obama at the right time on the East Coast in New Jersey giving Chris Christie a hug showing in Barack Obama's case that he was bipartisan. But for the uh, supporters or even the opponents of Chris Christie uh, to be seen to be chummy with Barack Obama was not a good thing. So even in the same instance for the same disaster, the same hmm. two people who are there, it worked to the benefit of one and not the other. And maybe that's just the kind of partisan time and polarization that we now live. But if you play the bipartisan card correctly, as Obama did, it helps if you're viewed by either, again, your supporters or your opponents of, of playing it incorrectly and seeming to just do it for show uh, and with someone they don't like, then it doesn't work. Yeah, I imagine if there's a little bit of underdog status, too, that matters uh, in those moments. Um, you watch presidents in many cases, particularly disasters. You, I know you've written about um, former President Trump responding to disasters. Now we've watched President Biden. And I think the most recent one was in Maui. I wonder how you think he handled that. He is, he's getting a little bit of criticism for that. Um, is it fair or unfair? He first got criticism for not responding quickly enough, just with the, the prayers and the sympathy. So that's the first step. As soon as, because of communications now, media, social media, as soon as the disaster occurs, the president either has to issue a statement or be on camera saying the right words. And usually uh, Biden does that, but Biden certainly has foibles and faults as we all do. One of them is not seeming empathetic enough because he has had so much tragedy in his own life. I think he has genuine empathy, but he, he held off on that. And then the other was he seemed to be responding to a question about Maui with a no comment. Now, the White House is saying he didn't hear the question or he thought the question was about something else. So we'll even put right. that aside. But that's been part of the criticism. And then some others were saying he waited too long. There is a sweet spot, as I mentioned, between disaster and the president's arrival. You can't go right away because it's dangerous. And second, you can't take the first responders away to give security right. to the president. So you have to hit that sweet spot of getting there at the right time. Don't go too soon. Don't go too late. And in between, 
between when you don't go because it's a security issue and when you do go, you can't be George W. Bush flying over uh, the, the hurricane ravaged Katrina countryside, particularly of flooded New Orleans in 2005 and be looking out of Air Force One down on the disaster. Eventually he went to Jackson Square in New Orleans, but it was viewed as too late. So it's viewed as too late. And by those who really opposed him, it was viewed as racist. Mm. So, well, then that that's a, that leads me to my really my next question. So from your, your historical knowledge then, which president has had maybe one of the best responses that comes to mind and what lessons should have been taken from them if they if they weren't right well i think that that george w bush got a, a bad deal uh, he was trying not to be uh invasive <laughs> and 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 also in the katrina situation he said a uh, heck of a job brownie to the head of fema when a heck of a job was not being done but i would also say that presidents and their legacies he's done a very good job with the legacy he had his administration do a report on what went wrong owned up to it and he also has that as part of his presidential library in Dallas and the decision points uh, theater. You get to make the choices he had to make under difficult conditions. So part of it is if you do make a mistake uh, at the time, in real time, you can recover from it. Uh, the person who I think in modern times and more recent times who was really good at uh, being the comforter in chief was Bill Clinton because uh, he did genuinely care about people and uh, much like uh, President Biden, who had a lot of family tragedy, you might remember Bill Clinton's father was killed in a car wreck before Bill Clinton was even born. Uh, so he uh. knew what tragedy was like, and he really did care about people. So I would give the example of the Oklahoma City bombing uh, in 1995, in April of that year. Bill Clinton's uh, presidency was sort of shrinking at that point, and he went out to uh, Oklahoma and he hugged people and he cared about people, and and you could tell people responded well. And I'd also say President uh, Obama with the shooting in Charleston. Uh, who will ever forget his on this being on the stage and and bursting into the hymn "Amazing Grace"? Mm, right, of course. Well, a professor and presidential studies director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, Barbara Perry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Student loan interest resumed this past Friday after a lengthy pause on repayments during the pandemic and a legal fight that got all the way up to the Supreme Court. A majority of justices found the administration overstepped its authority in attempting to forgive student loan debt for millions of borrowers. What I did I thought was appropriate and was able to be done and would get done. I didn't give borrowers false hope. But the court said forgiving $400 billion in loans at that time required congressional approval. The president said from the White House after the court struck down the forgiveness plan. I'm never going to stop fighting for you. We'll use every tool at our disposal to get you the student debt relief you need and reach your dreams. The Biden administration said a couple of weeks ago, though, that through other authorities, they are forgiving $116 billion in student loan debt, including $39 billion for more than 800,000 borrowers who've been repaying for the past two decades and have not received the relief they were owed due to system errors.
The administration's also launched a new plan that calculates repayment based on income and family size with forgiveness after a certain number of years. Borrowers also have a year-long grace period allowing flexibility on when to make those payments. And this comes as Americans' credit card debt tops $1 trillion, something some financial analysts like Matt Schultz at LendingTree are worried about, he told C-SPAN last month. The reintroduction of those payments into people's budgets is going to be a big deal and it's going to force people to reprioritize some of their spending and that money that now has to go back to paying that student loan bill off will be money that can't go towards paying credit card debt off. There's still some time, but money owed on student debt is coming due shortly. Basically, uh, starting to September 1st, interest is beginning to accrue on all those outstanding loans that have been on pause. Lawrence Sprung is the president and founder of Midland Financial. And then first payments by the uh, loan holders will be due in October. It sounds like there are a whole lot of exceptions, though, to that. Like the Biden administration passed some new rules saying you can actually figure out when it's best for you to pay through next September. And now more than 800,000 borrowers won't actually owe any more money. That would That's a total of $39 billion that's being forgiven. Um, and even though the Supreme Court struck down the broad student loan forgiveness plan, that um, 800,000 borrower figure, that, that they're being given loan forgiveness under a different authority. All in all, the Biden administration says there's a total of $116 billion in loan forgiveness, even with the Supreme Court's ruling striking down his, his other forgiveness plan. Is that is that a significant amount? Uh, I, I, I guess it depends on how you look at it. It's a it's an almost, uh, you know, two to three trillion dollar issue. So, you know, a hundred billion dollars, although to most people sounds like a tremendous amount of money. And it is, uh, you know, when you put it in relation to a two to three trillion dollar problem, it's uh, really just a uh, small scratch of the uh, bigger problem. Is there really that much? I was reading the federal loans are what, like over 1.6 trillion, and then there's another amount for private loans. Is it really that big? Is it really over two trillion? It, it is. It is. Oh. Uh, it is that large a problem, and you know that that's why one of the things I've been talking very heavily about is a lot of the things that we've been seeing up until now is just addressing the issue as it stands today and trying to eliminate and make it easier for those who are current borrowers. At the same time, I think we also have to put a, a good amount of thought into how do we correct this problem so that we don't end up with yeah. a five or ten trillion dollar problem in the future. Well, to that point, you know, there was some legislation proposed right around the Supreme Court's striking down, um, including, I guess, and even before uh, the Supreme Court's ruling, um, Republicans seeking to give out loans in part based on the predicted income you might make based on your study major. Uh, there's a Democratic measure proposing to like cap interest rates on a sliding scale, but even at the top level, it would be no more than 4%. Do we need something like that? Or if you were advising members of Congress, what would you tell them to sort of consider? Well, I, I think it's a multifaceted problem, in, you know, in my opinion. I think, one, you have the universities and schools that are huge marketers. They're great at what they do, and they attract students, which, you know, they may not attract exactly the right students. They might attract mm. people who have an interest in going there because of the marketing they do. Two, you know, I, I think to your point about what you said about some of these proposals, you know, if I'm a business and I want to borrow money, 
I have to show a business plan, why it makes sense for me to borrow this money. And I think it should be somewhat similar. There should be reasonings behind why a student needs or wants this money. And, you know, it should make sense. And then three, I think parents and students alike need to understand and go through the college and, and higher education selection process, similar similarly to making a large purchase, like buying a home or buying a car. Uh, families tend to put more research and effort into those purchases than higher education, and it ends up getting folks in trouble. And, you know, we see it in our practice here that people end up going to schools, maybe not because it has the the exact return on investment, but there are other intangibles, you know, maybe the student wants to go to warmer weather or there's a, you know, a sports fanaticism with a specific team. Those are not really things that are going to benefit the student and not helpful to the loan process. You know, well, to that point then, you know, after the Supreme Court's ruling, we heard a lot of talk about like, what are we even doing, right? Like why, how did it get this expensive? College wasn't always this expensive. And, you know, if you're gonna be left with this much debt to your point and not even for like an MD or a JD, um, right. you know, sh what what do we need to reconsider? Like there was a lot of talk after this, at least on our network about maybe reconsidering this whole four year college degree thing being the best idea for everybody, maybe a trade school or a tech school, you know, that that is sh in shorter in duration or less money when I mean, we need welders, right? Like, is that should there be this sort of national push for that? I'm with you a thousand percent. I think that okay. we've created we we've created this construct that you know you go to you know uh, school, you then go to high school, and then the path is you go to college. And if you don't go to college, that you're letting somebody or yourself down. And I don't well, think that's the case. It matters to employers, right, Larry? I mean, I, I have a friend. She didn't go to college, and she for her whole life. Um, it's been like a stumbling block for her. She's made it. She's found people to hire her, but it's been a huge consideration. That is definitely, you know, problematic for certain careers and professions and for certain careers and professions, you definitely have to go that route. Uh, but maybe it's not going to college at 17. Maybe it's waiting a couple of years, getting some work life experience, understanding exactly where you want to be, then going mm. to school. Uh, you know, because I, I will tell you personal in my own personal experience, I, I went to college at uh, 17, right out of high school, and I did not value my education at that point in time. I kind of went through it because I felt like I had to. Um, right. And I had, you know, I had more fun than education, I think. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that that's the case. Luckily, I didn't come out of school with much debt. But I will tell you this, when I was in my early 20s, after working in this profession for a little bit, I really valued and understood what I wanted to do. And I, I really valued education more. When I sat and right. went for my CFP, I took that far more seriously than I took my undergrad studies. Yeah, because when you know what you want, it's very, very different. Um, in your practice, did you find, and this is anecdotal, people thought that they wouldn't have to repay these loans? Like but the president said, um, after the pandemic pause, I'm I'm going to forgive a lot of this for most for a lot of people. Did, were people sort of banking on that? 
I, I think there were, um, you know, we the way we guided them was act as if they are not going to be forgiven. Um, yeah. If you're not going to continue paying because of the pause, set up a side account and act as if you still have those payments. So when they do resume, you have the funds available because, you know, what we try to do in financial planning is is not an exact science. It's more of an art form. And, you know, planning for the worst and hoping for the best sometimes really works out to your advantage. And I think it's really no different with these situations. And, you know, I, I think that I don't want people to get overconfident either, because there's a lot of different things floating around with regard to student loan interest. Ever since this, you know, situation got, you know, voted down by the Supreme Court, there's been a lot of action in there. And I still think people are hanging on to some of these things coming in and saving them. And I would encourage them to act as if they're not going to and, and be prepared. Okay. Just a couple of more for you. When, when we look back at this, should there, should there be a lesson learned? Like, Hey, don't pause student loan repayments, even during a disaster. I mean, that doesn't necessarily seem like the best idea either. Like what, what did we learn out of this? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 takeaway for me is this system, whatever, you know, however you want to term it or what however you want to look at it, it's clear that there are big issues. Uh, you know, and there are bigger issues than just what the student loan situation is today. We have big issues for the future. So it's a matter of figuring out a way that makes this more palatable for those people that have the loans today and make it so that the people who are going to go, you know, be entering school in the next couple of months, that they're not going to end up in the same position three to five years from now. Right. And I think that's the lesson. There's clearly an overhaul that needs to be done. Maybe it's not giving everybody, you know, relief and 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 wiping out their loans, but it's certainly not continuing on the way we are. There's got to be a happy medium in between. Okay. And finally, I know you're not you know, a macro economist here, but right. But I mean, there is a lot of talk. I'm sure you've seen it and, and read it about what this might mean for the economy. I mean, American credit card debt has collectively, I, I guess, topped a trillion dollars now. I mean, uh, people don't necessarily have the, the cash flow. Um, and there's there's some talk that if people are now expected to pay those student loans as well, this could cause some sort of crisis. Is, is that overstated? Or do you think it's possible that we do see some real strong effects in the broader economy? So I think there will be effects. I don't think that there are going to be these overarching, disastrous type of effects that are going to, uh, you know, be be imposed upon the economy. But, you know, if you're a household that you have X number of dollars to spend each month and now you have this increased expense, certainly that's going to have to be cut out somewhere. And we're recommending to people that they really sit down, especially those that their loans are going to you know, go off pause and they're going to have to start making payments in October, start sitting down today and devising their budget, looking at how much money's coming in, how much money's going out, and look through, more importantly, the money going out, what can be cut out immediately? What do you no longer use? no longer want, get rid of it, start making room for these uh, payments. And with vendors that you might be using for a long time that you've seen price increases happen over time, I did it myself with my own alarm company, you might be able to, you know, get some kind of, you know, long-term customer discount or some 
quote unquote introductory rate again. So you have to start being prepared to make these payments. There's definitely going to be effect, but what area of the economy that's going to happen in at this current time? I don't know because, and then lastly, I would say because of the on-ramp program, people don't have to necessarily make payments right away. They're going to have a 12 month period to kind of get in the groove of making right. these payments. So if there is an effect, we may not see that for another year or two. Hmm. Good point. All right. Lawrence Sprung, uh, founder, lead wealth advisor at Midland Financial. Thanks for joining. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, how does a struggling Chinese economy affect the U.S.? As Congress members return from their August recess, there's already talk of a government shutdown. And we talk about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's latest health scare, as well as aging politicians. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.